Matthew chapter 17. And this morning we will be uh, reading from Matthew chapter 17, verses 10 to 13. And before we get started, I'll let you know that I have, if you see a small English Standard Version Bible floating around here, it might be mine. I don't know what I've done with it. You know, I just throw it everywhere. But, um, so I'll be reading from a New American Standard. Uh, They're very similar, but you may notice a few different words. So let's hear now Matthew chapter 17, verses 10 through 13. This is uh, the word of the Lord. And his disciples asked him, why then did the scribes say that Elijah must come first? And he answered and said, Elijah is coming and will restore all things. But I say to you that Elijah already came and they did not recognize him, but did to him whatever they wished So also the Son of Man is going to suffer at their hands. Then the disciples understood that he had spoken to them about John the Baptist. The grass withers, the flower fades. Please be seated. Let's pray. Gracious God and Father, We thank you so much for the work that you are doing in this world through the Lord Jesus Christ by your spirit and the ministry of your holy angels. Lord, as they finalize the defeat of Satan and all his army and especially of our great enemy, death. This morning I pray and ask that you would visit us, Lord, with courage that you would help us to heed the commands that you gave to Joshua through Moses. Be strong and very courageous. Lord, there are battles behind us and there are many battles ahead of us. Help us to be faithful in your sight. And we pray now, Lord, give us humble hearts before you. Help us to draw upon your strength. Through your word, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. One of, the, one of the TV shows that Michelle and I have watched over the years, I guess, is, um, is one called Property Brothers. Some of you probably are familiar with this, where they will uh, usually assist a, a family uh, to look for a home, and they find a home, and then they go in, and, and they do a lot of work. Usually the work that they do on the homes that they find is, is called renovation. So often this involves... Uh, a certain amount of, of tearing down walls, sometimes all the way uh, down to the studs, and they'll come back in and they completely, they completely renovate the house so that afterward it looks totally different. You wouldn't recognize it from the house that it was before. It's totally updated, new floors, everything, uh, whatever the wife wants. Now, there, there's another... Other people um, are a little more delicate, and they're not engaged in the work of renovation. If you own an old home, often you're engaged in the work of restoration. And they're very similar terms. They, They overlap. But the idea of restoration means that, well, I'm not exactly interested in my home looking totally modern, 
In fact, I might shop on eBay or Facebook Marketplace because I want to find flooring that matches what came before. I like the old house. I like the old bones that are there. And, and so I, I want to respect the history of what has come before. And I, I, want, I just want to preserve it. And I draw your attention to the distinction between renovation and restoration because we find it in our passage this morning if you look at verse 11. And he answered and said, Elijah is coming, and notice what he says, will restore all things. And as we go through this text then, it's setting us in mind of what the work of the Messiah is. And in particular, Christ did not come to simply cut off everything that came before and start over. The work of the Messiah is a work of restoration. I want to restore things. In other words, I want to clean, take that old mirror and I'm going to clean off the paint that your great-grandmother put on there and we're going to bring it back to its original varnish and finish and make it look beautiful again. That's the work of the Messiah. He comes to not just totally restore, not gut the house, not burn the house down and build on top of it, but to restore all things. That is very important because some expect a total renovation when what we actually expect is a total restoration. Now, what Jesus teaches us in this passage is that the arrival of John the Baptist the arrival of John the Baptist signified the beginning of God's worldwide restoration project. The, be- the arrival of John the Baptist signified the beginning of God's worldwide restoration project. So, um, in verses 10 to 13, beginning in verse 9, they are coming down from the mountain. So, in, in, verse, in chapter 17 so far, what we've noticed is that Jesus took these three disciples, Peter, James, and John, he took them out and they trekked up to the top of Mount Hermon, which has enormous significance historically and both uh, um, in Israel and in pagan worship. And Jesus there demonstrated his majesty to them, but he gave them a preview of, of himself in his ascended glory. They saw his estate as he is right now. After the resurrection, going up to Mount Zion, being enthroned there, and and his glory being shown, being promoted above the angels. This is what they had a preview of. And as they're coming down from the mountain, they had a a conversation. Certainly, you can imagine that they're, they're filled with questions what, what did we just see? Help us to work out the significance of that. And, and Jesus is telling them, answering their questions perhaps, but he also tells them, now don't tell anybody what you see until after the resurrection. In other words, you need more training before you go out and start telling people what you've seen. You need to, to understand it fully. But then they come to this other question in verse 10. And his disciples asked him, Why then did the scribes say that Elijah must come? And so this will be the conversation until they reach reach the ground. They will talk about this question. And what Jesus reveals 
to his disciples two things. The restoration of all things has begun. And the restoration of all things is in progress. The restoration of all things has begun. And the restoration of all things is in progress. And so notice with me in verse 10 again that they ask this question, first of all, the restoration of all things is begun. The, the disciples ask this question, and as you look at it, it's, you think, well, why did they, why did they ask this question? Um, why then do the scribes say that Elijah must come first? And so apparently they have, either in the course of their upbringing, listening to the scribes, have heard them say Elijah has to come first. Well, before what? Um, wh- why does this question occur to these apostles? Why are they asking him, asking Jesus about, about Elijah? Well, apparently the transfiguration, seeing Christ in this exalted state, has prompted them to think about the coming of Elijah. Something has to happen before that can happen. And they say, Lord, this, all along as the scribes have opened their scrolls, they have to- told us that Elijah has to come first. Why is it? Are they wrong? Now, Jesus has obviously corrected a whole lot of things that the scribes had taught them. So that wouldn't be a surprise if he said, why do you even bring that up? I've shown you that they're wrong. Um, but they asked the question. And so I want you to, to turn back with me um, because Jesus begins to answer them by referring um, to the prophet Malachi or if you prefer, the, the Italian prophet Malachi. Um, but he's right, before, he's right before Matthew. So if you just turn a few pages back, we're going to go to Malachi chapter, Malachi chapter 4. We're, we're going to go to Malachi for a second, and then we're going to go to Joel, and then we're going to go to the book of Acts. And so remember, Jesus in the transfiguration gave the apostles a preview of an actual historical event, which was Jesus being taken up in the clouds to the Ancient of Days, where he was promoted above the angels and he sat down on his throne while God makes his enemies a footstool for his feet. And so as we get back to Malachi chapter 4, we, we find the passage that the disciples refer to and probably the scribes. Let's read in verse 1. For behold, the day is coming, burning like a furnace, and all the arrogant and every evildoer will be chaff. And the day that is coming will set them ablaze, says the Lord of hosts, so that it will leave them neither root nor branch. But for you who fear my name, The sun of righteousness will rise with healing in its wings, and you will go forth and skip about like calves from the stall. You will tread down the wicked, for they will be ashes under the soles of your feet on the day which I am preparing, says the Lord of hosts. Verse 4, remember the law of Moses, my servant, even the statutes and ordinances which I commanded him in Horeb and all Israel. Behold, I am going to send you Elijah the prophet before the coming of the great and terrible day of the Lord. So it doesn't take a rocket scientist to see that somehow these apostles relate 
what they just saw to another event, the great and awesome or fearful day of the Lord. And so they understand that before that day comes, this great and awful fear of the uh, day of the Lord, Elijah is supposed to come. He is supposed to pre, uh, uh, be the predecessor, as it were, to that coming great and awesome day of the Lord. A day of, a day of judgment and a day of victory. A day of conquest and a day of hope. A day when... The people of God will skip like calves in the stall, treading down wicked, the wicked like ashes. Well, turn over with me to another reference to the great and awful day of the Lord, the only other one in the prophets in Joel chapter 2. And for some of you, as we mentioned Joel chapter 2, you can say, okay, I think I know, I know where this is going. As we start talking about the new covenant, Joel chapter 2 is a significant passage of scripture for us. Verses 28 to 31, but I'm just going to read verse 31. Actually, we'll read 30 and 31. Joel chapter 2, verses 30 and 31. I will display wonders in the sky and on the earth, blood, fire, and columns of smoke. The sun will be turned into darkness and the moon into blood before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. So you see there, Malachi and Joel referring, both referring to this great and awful day of the Lord, a day of fear, uh, when the glory of God shines. Now, you notice that the language here is very apocalyptic. The sun becomes dark. The moon becomes like blood. And so as you're reading these words, you're thinking, nobody's going to miss this. This is, this is going to be incredible. The moon will be, what, what's going to happen? Well, it will turn red or something like that, or we'll have a blood moon, and you've heard this, people talking about this recently, and the, the sun's brightness will be taken away. But here's what's important. I want you now to turn over with me to Acts chapter 2. And we're going to begin reading in verse 16. You remember that on the day of Pentecost, the Holy Spirit came in a powerful way upon the apostles as they were gathered probably in Mark's house in the upper room where they had celebrated the Last Supper. And they were immediately given the ability to speak in other languages. And they, the picture seems to be that they went out of this house and stood on the step and began to proclaim the gospel probably one after the other in these different languages, signifying a reverse of what happened at the Tower of Babylon. Now God is calling the nations to himself. There will be one pure language. And the people heard this and said that the men were drunk. And in verse 15 Peter says, no, these men are not drunk. Verse 16, but this is what was spoken of through the prophet Joel. Now notice what he says. And it shall be in the last day, God says, that I will pour forth of my spirit on all mankind, and your sons and your daughters shall prophesy, and your young men shall see visions, and your old men shall dream dreams, 
Even on my bond slaves, both men and women, I will in those days pour forth of my spirit and they shall prophesy. And I will grant wonders in the sky above and signs on the earth below, blood and fire and vapor of smoke. The sun will be turned into darkness and the moon into blood before the great and glorious day of the Lord shall come. And it shall be that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Men of Israel, listen to these words. Jesus the Nazarene, a man attested to you by God with miracles and wonders and signs which God performed through him in your midst, just as you yourselves know. This man delivered over by the predestined plan and foreknowledge of God, you nailed to a cross by the hands of godless men and put him to death. And what Peter is telling them is that this great and awesome day of the Lord, you are witnessing this very moment. All this apocalyptic language, this language of decreation, that God is undoing the creation, causing the sun to stop shining, turning the moon into blood. This is fulfilled this day. And what's significant about the day of Pentecost? Well, it's 10 days after the day of ascension. Everything that Malachi spoke of. This is why... The disciples connected their vision of Christ in His glory with the great and awesome day of the Lord. And Peter says, it's come upon us. It has come upon us. Malachi predicted Elijah would come before that day, you see. So now the disciples are wondering to themselves, we have had a preview of the great and awesome day of the Lord. Where is Elijah? He fits into this. Notice what Jesus says to them as we go back now to Matthew chapter 17. Verse 11. And he answered and said, Elijah is coming and will restore all things. Or you could translate that, Elijah does come. And will restore all things. Now, Elijah was a, a pretty significant project, prophet in, in the old, Older Testament. And in 1 Kings chapter 17, he just appeared on the scene. And you remember that, that wicked king Ahab was the king over the northern kingdom. And he was married to this lovely woman by the name of Jezebel. Uh, whom the dogs ate and licked up her blood. But Elijah just comes out of nowhere. First Kings 17, there's no, there's no, no run up to him. There's no, he, this man was born in this place. He just appeared as a prophet. And he prayed to God, and God brought famine on the land again in judgment against Ahab for three years. It didn't rain. He challenged Ahab and the wicked prophets of Baal in 1 Kings chapter 18, and he yearned for God's people to return and be faithful to God. He called and commissioned Elisha, who came after him, and you remember the dramatic end of Elijah's ministry because the chariot of fire came down and picked him up alive and carried him into the presence of the Lord. And so Malachi in his prophecy of the great and awesome day of the Lord, says this man comes 
And so the disciples there saying to them, says, well, where, we haven't, have we missed him? Where was he? Where was Elijah? Where, where, is, the, where, where is the fiery prophet who fought, fought Ahab and the prophets of Baal? Where, where was he? And Jesus says, he does come. Hold on. He, he does come. And he does restore all things. This is his work, my friends. He will restore all things. And we notice that Elijah's work then is restoration, not replacement. It is restoration, not replacement. Just to give you some idea of what Jesus is talking about, in the Gospels, Jesus is spoken of as restoring a withered man's hand. So he didn't take him into the operating room and cut off the old hand and implant another one. This, it wasn't a transplant job. He didn't give him new fingers. It was as though that old hand simply opened up and it was able to do what it was designed to do. In the same way, Jesus on another occasion restored a man's sight. He didn't take his eyes out and put new eyes in and attach the retina. He gave him what he had from the beginning. Elijah will come and make something whole. He won't take away and replace. And you see then, this is the work of the kingdom of Jesus Christ. Think about that. This is the work of the kingdom of Christ. It is a work of restoration, not replacement. It is a work of restoration, not replacement. The appearance then of Elijah signals the beginning of this great work. It is a day of salvation. Some of the Jewish commenters on this, thinking about this great and awesome day of the Lord when Elijah would appear, they say things like this. Now listen. It is made known and promised to us from our eternal Redeemer through His servants the prophets that in the future that Israel shall attain an even higher state of being when the Holy One performs great and awesome acts. What this prophet, or what this rabbi is saying is that sometime in the future, God is going to bring a day for us, Israel, that is greater than the exodus from Egypt. He's going to bring us out of our bondage in this great day. Another one says this, Eliyahu Hanavi will rally us to a teshuvah that will trigger the arrival of Mashiach, our final redemption. What he's saying is Elijah the prophet will rally the people of God to teshuvah. What does that mean? Repentance. A turning. And he will trigger the arrival of Mashiach, the Messiah, our final redemption. Turn over just for a second to Luke chapter 1. You remember in the, in the birth narrative of our Lord that one of the significant events leading up to that was Zechariah 
being told that he would have a son by the name, and he would name him John. And as he's being told about that, the angel, Gabriel, notice what the angel says to him in verse 17 of Luke 1. It is he who will go as a forerunner before him. That's a reference to Isaiah 40. In the spirit and power of Elijah. It is he, John, who will go as a forerunner before him in the spirit and power of Elijah. Zechariah had already been told, your son John, in his ministry, will be the one who prepares the way of the Lord, as it says in Isaiah 40. And he will go in the spirit and the power of Elijah. So Elijah is not literally coming back, but one in the likeness of Elijah will come before the Messiah and prepare his way. What is all of this saying to us? All of this traipsing through various passages of Scripture. It is reminding us that when John the Baptist came, he was signaling a transition point in time. This is why our calendars are split between B.C. and A.D. Or if you prefer, B.C.E. and C.E. before Christ's era and Christ's era. Because when Christ came, signaled by the coming of John the Baptist, it told us that things are changing. God is embarking on a restoration work of his entire world. And John the Baptist teaches us that this time has begun. Um, modern, modern Jews... on an annual basis, practice something called a Seder meal. Some of you have heard of this. It's the Passover. And at the conclusion of it, of it one, of the, one of the customs that they have at the end of this Seder meal is they take a cup and they, uh, they take a glass of wine and they set it on the table. It's an empty spot. And this, this cup of wine that they pour out is called the cup of Elijah. And at the end of this meal, many of them will open the front door. Sometimes they'll send a child out and they'll say, go and look for Elijah. And the child will go and he'll open the door and he looks out. I don't see Elijah anywhere. And he comes back and says, Elijah's not here. And they recite several verses, mostly from the Psalms, where they beseech God to pour his wrath upon their persecutors and oppressors. And according to their tradition, it's in that moment that the spirit of Elijah blesses their homes. And it's a sad irony that this act demonstrates God's judgment against his apostate people. As Jesus explained, Elijah had come in spirit and in power in the person of John the Baptist 
John's arrival signaled the beginning of restoration. And so here's, how do I begin to apply this in my own heart and life? This is a lot of Bible work and we're thinking about this, but, but you, you should understand that God is intensely concerned about the restoration of his world. Not simply burning it down with fire, but, but reclaiming it from the wicked and making it what it was intended to be, a theater for his glory in which his people dwell and worship him with his holy angels for all time. That's God's intention. And the coming of John the Baptist and the crucifixion and death and burial and ascension uh, resurrection and ascension of Christ signals that this work has begun. And some of you say, well, I, because you're observant, you say, I don't see that. <laughs> all, all I see is war and schism and bombs and hatred. In fact, I haven't even put up a Christmas tree this year because I really don't feel like it. And so I think that's why this next part is very important for us. What does this restoration look like? What does this restoration look like? Let's see, secondly, the restoration of all things in progress. I want you to notice something very important. As you look back at the text in verse 11, and he answered and said, Elijah is coming, or does come, and will restore all things. Now, remember that he's referring to Malachi chapter 4. I want you to turn back over there with me just for a second, and let's look together at Malachi chapter 4, verse 6. You see it? He will restore the hearts of the fathers to their children and the hearts of the children to their fathers so that I will not come and smite the land with a curse. When Jesus begins to speak of the restoration of all things, what does that mean in, in its very most basic sense. This. That the hearts of fathers will be turned to their children and the hearts of children will be turned to their fathers. To turn the heart is an act of spiritual devotion. In Deuteronomy chapter 30, verse 10, Moses said, when you obey the voice of the Lord your God to keep His commandments and His statutes that are written in this book of the law, when you turn to the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul. He can also reference turning away from the Lord, as in Deuteronomy eleven sixteen. Take care, lest your heart be deceived, and you turn aside and serve other gods and worship them. In other words, the coming of the Messiah and the restoration of all things, it, it doesn't, it's not some dramatic thing. 
It is. But it's not signs in the sky. It's not all of a sudden terrorists throw their weapons down and and come to the Lord. That might happen. But it happens in a very simple method. Fathers turn to their children and they love them and they teach them to love and obey the Lord. You see what's happening is the same God who created His world and began with a family restarts with families. He doesn't just throw down a new program, wrench everything apart. He begins in a very natural way. What Malachi describes as the turning of fathers' hearts to their children and the turning of children's hearts to their fathers is what Jesus calls the restoration of all things. Fathers' hearts will be turned to their children. They will give covenant love. I think one of the best places to see this is in Proverbs 3, verses 1-4. to My son, do not forget my teaching, but let your heart keep my commandments. For length of days and years of life and peace they will add to you. Let not steadfast love and faithfulness forsake you. Bind them around your neck. Write them on the tablet of your heart so you will find favor and good success in the sight of God and man. The heartbeat, Solomon's heartbeat when he's writing these Proverbs. Remember, he was a man who according to the book of Ecclesiastes and and, uh, 2 Kings, First and Second Kings, he gave himself to everything he wanted. He didn't spare any, any of his lusts. He, he fulfilled them all. And it's, it's as though he's, he's come to this point in his life as the writer of Ecclesiastes, and he says it's all emptiness. And what he yearns for is that his son will not walk in that way. Do not forsake the Lord. Walk with Him. Set Him as the King of your heart. This is a father's heart being turned to his children. Ephesians chapter 6. Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Honor your father and your mother. This is the first commandment with a promise, that it may go well with you and that you may live long in the land. Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger. Instead, Bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. How do you know when you see the work of God in the restoration of all things? Very simply, dads begin training their children to love the Lord and walk in His ways. That's where it is. Wasn't wasn't this God's plan from the very beginning? That Adam would resist the temptation and he would model righteousness and holiness for his children and Cain and Abel and Seth and all of them would walk after him in those ways and they would love the Lord. And this is how it begins again. 
It's not by going into the streets per se, and it, it can happen. Peter preached the gospel, and thousands came, and thousands and thousands and thousands in the early church. They came and they came and they came. But it ultimately really begins in this way. One generation teaching another and another and another and another. That is how God brings restoration. In other words, fathers are not like faithless Eli in 1 Samuel 3 who saw his sons blaspheming God and the Scriptures say, and he did not restrain them. It's very easy for men to abandon children, isn't it? It's naturally easy. They don't have to carry the child for nine months. They, they can enjoy themselves and then go away and do it as many times as they want to. And isn't it one of the demonstrations of the wickedness of, of our culture that most children are born into that? But the work of the Gospel of Jesus Christ where you see it is men love and teach their families to honor Christ. But there's another aspect of that. Children's hearts will be turned to their fathers. They will receive covenant love and grow wise. You remember that the Lord commanded, honor your father and your mother that your days may be long in the land that the Lord your God is giving you. And we remember that this is the first commandment with a promise. The children who honor their fathers and their mothers will be the ones who are granted blessed with long life in the land. Paul repeats this in Ephesians chapter 6. This is a, a two-sided thing. The child who has come to know and love the Lord is the child that will listen to his father, receive his instruction, and love him in return for it. You see, the restoration of all things restores the family. You see that? Some of you say, well, um, today I planted a garden. And I would say, well, let's go look at it. We walk out into, your, we walk out into, the, into the backyard, and all I see there is, a, is dirt. I say, well, I thought you, I thought you planted a garden. I'm expecting to see some corn and some tomatoes and some okra growing up here. And you say, well, I just I put the seeds in the ground. It's got, it, I didn't put full-grown plants in the ground. And this is what Jesus is talking about here. You see, the restoration of the kingdom, the coming of the kingdom of the Lord Jesus Christ is not something that just appears. There it is. What God has ordained is that the restoration of the kingdom would come organically. As fathers teach their children, the children listen lovingly to their father and obey him, and then they teach their children. That's how the kingdom comes. The natural order of things continues, including fathers actively training and modeling godliness to their dear children, teaching them to love and obey Christ as King and Lord. The coming of John the Baptist 
signaled for us that the God's work of restoration has begun. Today, the apostate Jews continue to look for Elijah's arrival. They rightly understand that his arrival will signal significant change for God's people. Elijah, his appearance means the restoration of God's people. So, as we take this away and think about it, yes, there is an exhortation for fathers to be faithful and active in training their children. Perhaps for the childless, taking children in and teaching them to love and obey the Lord, showing that covenant love. But we understand that this is a mark of the Spirit's work. Where the Spirit is working, there will be fathers loving their children. Where the Spirit is working, there will be children listening to their fathers, taking His counsel. And it's for this that we should pray. Let's do that now. Our Lord and our God, we do thank You that You are a faithful Father to us. We confess that we are not obedient children. We take the, the parts of Your Word that we like and enjoy and we obey those, sometimes half-heartedly, and we neglect others. But we ask, Lord, now for Your forgiveness and that You would continue working in our hearts, bring us into a position of submission before You, acknowledging that Your wisdom is infinitely greater than our own, And put within our hearts, O Lord, a desperate desire for Your blessing. Help us to live for You. And we pray for every father in our congregation. Lord, that You would help us to model humility before the Lord. And love to our children. That we would be faithful in their lives. Careful in how we instruct and protect them from evil. I pray for the grandchildren in our congregation. I thank you for the grandparents, especially the grandfathers, who diligently seek to teach their grandchildren, the generation after them, to love and obey Christ. And I ask that you would strengthen their labors and enable them to see the fruit of it, O Lord. And we confess that in all of this, Father, we are totally dependent on you. The most faithful father will see no fruit apart from the Spirit's work. And the most faithful child, Lord, will be frustrated by a godless father. And so we ask that you would bless us and be merciful to us and restore all these things. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.